CEU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect, the talk show about medieval and early modern culture. Hello and welcome to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval's radio podcast on everything medieval and early modern. My name is Michał Mahalski and I'm joined today by Bernhard Palme. He's a professor of ancient history and papyrology at the University of Vienna and the director of the Papyrus Collection at the Papyrus Museum of the Austrian National Library. He specializes in the history and culture of Greco-Roman Egypt, as well as the evaluation and historical analysis of the documentary sources of the ancient world. Among his numerous publications are editions of Greek papyri, as well as studies on the Mediterranean world in late antiquity and the history of Roman and Byzantine Egypt. He is currently working on the social, economic and legal history of the later Roman Empire. Professor, it's a pleasure to see you here. Thanks for the invitation. I think that those of us who do not study Eastern Mediterranean history associate papyri with very ancient Egyptian history. But as a matter of fact, this writing material was in use in much wider area and through a much longer period of time. Would you outline for us just how long were papyri in use and how widespread geographically was their use? Usually we connect uh, papyri with Egypt, and this is, of course, true. Talking about Egypt, we first think of the pharaonic Egypt, which means this is the history of Egypt from the beginning of the 3rd century BC until the late 2nd millennium BC. So this is a long period of time. Fortunately, we can observe that papyrus was used as a writing material from the very beginning of Egyptian history. Probably as soon as the hieroglyphic script was developed, somebody, we don't know his name, developed a method of producing this paper-like material as a writing material from organic material, the plant, the papyrus plant, which is growing along the Nile. So the very earliest papyri with writing on it, we have from the 28th century BCE. And of course, from this early period on, we have just a small number of documents. But as time goes on, the number of documents gets more and more. And after the pharaonic period, papyrus was still continued to be used. And in fact, it was until almost the 10th century, the most widely spread writing material, not only in Egypt, but also in the rest of the Mediterranean world. So the Egyptian history is documented from the beginning of the Old Kingdom until the Arab Middle Ages on this writing material. At least from the Hellenistic period onwards, probably even earlier, papyrus was exported from Egypt into other parts of the Eastern Mediterranean world. Later on, when the world became the Roman Empire, it was also exported to the western provinces of the Roman Empire. So practically, during the Roman period, we had papyrus widespread over all the Mediterranean world and Western Europe and Eastern Europe. We know this because some of the documents were sent from the Western provinces back to Egypt and are preserved there. Papyrus continued to be a cheap and widespread writing material until the 10th century. It was never replaced by parchment 
because parchment is much more expensive in its production, but it was replaced later on by early paper. And this was another shift, which we can observe from the 9th century onwards. Increasingly, at least in the Near East and in Egypt, we find paper replacing papyrus. But still, in the 8th and 9th century, papyrus was used, let's say, in Italy, in the chancelleries of the Pope, or even in Gaul. We have some texts on papyrus written under the Merovingian kings. So this is nothing that we would immediately think of when we talk about papyri. Usually, when we talk about papyri, we think about Egypt. And this is, of course, true. But on the other hand, we have to keep in mind that much of the material was widespread, and this is just part of a common written culture stretching, let's say, from the British islands until the Iranian highlands. As an organic material, these papyrus sheets and papyrus rolls can survive only in very arid climate. And this is the reason why, again, Egypt is our main source of finding papyri. Although we know from various texts from other parts of the ancient world that papyrus was widespread, but still more probably the 95% of the papyrus documents extant today originate from Egypt, because just in the arid zones of Egypt, uh, where there's practically no rain, this kind of material can survive. In other parts of the ancient world, even in Greece or in Italy, it is not dry enough that this papyrus material will prevail. So papyri that we do have from other regions than Egypt, especially Middle and Western Europe, they usually are preserved in the libraries and they are kept in the libraries since late antiquity or the early medieval period. For the historians, this means that we have Egypt as the country of origin for this papyri, but also the country where most of the material actually does come from. We have papyri also from other parts outside of Egypt, and this shows that it was widespread throughout centuries, also beyond the boundaries of Egypt. Usually those findings are coming again from very dry areas like the ancient Near East. So we have papyri from Syria, from modern-day Israel, around the Dead Sea. In some parts of North Africa, conditions were equally favorable for the transmission of this kind of texts. For the historian, this means that, again, Egypt is something like a showcase for what is going on in this approximately 4,000 years that papyrus was used as a writing material, especially for the historians of the Roman, the Byzantine, or the early Arab Empire. This is a highly welcome source of information, which in some parts may be discussed also within a much broader historical context, because Papyri very often speak about state institutions. And of course, state institutions in the Roman Empire were more or less the same throughout the empire. It's not just a specific Egyptian case. So what we can study here is something like a model case for many, many aspects of the Roman, the Greek world, the Byzantine world, and indeed the early Arab empire. 
Speaking about continuities over a long period of time, I wonder how did the production of papyri look like in those late antique and early Middle Ages empires, Byzantine Empire, Arab empires that you've mentioned? Was there the process or the scales different than in antiquity? Talking about the production, we are pretty sure that the methods of production didn't change so much over the centuries and the millennia. So what we have in modern collections on papyri from late antiquity as a writing material, they look very similar to those of the more ancient times, like the pharaonic period. So the method probably from the second millennium BCE onwards was more or less perfect and couldn't be changed a lot. We also know that at least in pharaonic Egypt, Greek and Roman period Egypt, we have papyrus production as a kind of a state monopoly. (laughs) And this apparently continued also under the early Arab Empire. This also means that during the Roman Empire, the export of papyrus from Egypt to other parts of the Roman world was very well organized and probably on a very large scale. And during the early centuries of the Arab Empire, it seems that remained more or less the same. So the change really came with the production of paper. This is extant from the 9th century onward, and we can see that the export of papyrus in approximately this period was reduced in size. Talking about, let's say, quantities, this is always difficult for ancient historians because we simply do not have enough data for quantifying, let's say, the numbers of export and comparing them from the first millennium BCE to the first millennium CE. But probably we would suggest that during the late antique period, it remained the same. And only in the early Arab period, the export gradually was a little bit reduced. And later on, papyrus anyway was replaced by another type of material. But this is just an estimation. It is difficult to say when exactly this movement was going on, when this development took place and in what size was the change. You've already mentioned that one of the primary things that papyri talk about are institutions. So I was wondering, what can papyri tell us about the pragmatic literacy in early Byzantine Empire and maybe in early Arabic empires? And can you tell us what kind of papyri documents were most often produced and for and by whom? Papyrus was used as writing material for all kinds of texts. So papyrologists just divide between literary texts written on papyrus and documentary texts, which means all kind of everyday handwriting on papyrus. For the literary texts, this was, of course, in antiquity, the the prime material of spreading each kind of literature and also theological books. Although the number of literary papyri compared to the masses of documentary papyri is quite small, probably just 5% of the extant papyri of literary content, but still they are highly important to us because one papyrus fragment that we have from an ancient Greek author may be just 
200 years after the text was composed, while the earliest parchment codex that we do have might be 2,000 years after <laughs> the, the text was composed, or 1,500 years. So this means even if most of the literary papyri are just fragmentary and we have very few books preserved entirety, nevertheless this means that even the small fragments of literary texts on papyrus are important because we can check how many mistakes are in the medieval codices. We suppose, of course, that the closer we are to the original text, so we have lesser errors and mistakes and variants in the literary texts. So even if we do not gain a lot of new texts from the papyri, those manuscripts are important for us for checking how reliable are our medieval manuscripts, which are, of course, the backbone of reconstructing the ancient authors. So this is about the literary texts. Just looking which kind of texts are preserved and from which finding spots within Egypt they do come is an additional information for us. That means some of the very well-known authors in Greek are preserved just a couple of times, while others are preserved in dozens and dozens of copies. Probably half of the extant Greek literary texts on papyri are Homer, the Iliad of Homer, because this was a kind of a school book or something that each household, let's say, where people could read and write, would own. This was something like a commonplace. If you had some kind of literary training, you would read Homer. This is why, let's say, there's a big number of texts of the Iliad of Homer in the papyri, much bigger than anything else. This is probably showing us the kind of literature which was used in school, which was the common, let's say, point of reference for those who had any kind of training in reading and writing. Next to the literary texts, we have the documentary texts, which are by far the most numerous ones. Those documentary texts are highly important for any kind of historical question because what we usually do have about ancient history are the historiographies of the Greek and Latin authors. And this is, of course, a kind of small elite historiography written by high-class people for other high-class readers. Usually it's about the historical events and military history and political history. So let's say it is kind of the big man who made history while other echelons of the society or women and children and, let's say, slaves hardly play any role in the ancient historiography. And this is strikingly different with the texts on papyrus. One thing that papyri add to our knowledge is the everyday life of the average people. So what we do have preserved on papyrus in very great numbers any kind of documents laid down in antiquity and especially in what we call the papyrological millennium, which is from approximately 300 BCE on to 700 CE. These are approximately 1,000 years 
which at least what we have is the most richest production of texts on papyrus. And during this period, we have texts from all kinds of social milieus. So it's not only the elite, it's not only the, the local elite, it's also the farmers, the soldiers, craftsmen. These are texts on the one hand, which contain, let's say, private letters. So this is interesting because this is the only chance for us historians to hear those people talking to each other. They are writing to each other in exactly the way that they were, let's say, communicating. And this is, of course, strikingly different from what we do have in the literary sources. We have, of course, wonderful literary letters from famous poets and famous authors. But this is something on a very different level. What we do have on the papyri is the everyday writing, so how people communicate it. It's interesting to see what did they want to know from each other, what did they tell each other, what were their worries, what were things that they were thinking worth of communicating. This is an insight into some parts of ancient societies that we would not have if we couldn't read those papyri. Of course, we have inscriptions on stone or uh, metal representing a different perspective on ancient societies, different from the historiographical sources. But still, papyri have a much more broad social spectrum because even very low-class people, poor people, are represented in the papyri. One question that we cannot answer is how widespread was the ability to read and write. To be honest, we cannot have not even an approximative estimation. We do not know if in the 3rd century BCE 20% or 40% of the people could read and write. If it was different in the 2nd century CE, were there 20% or 60% who could read or write, or more or less read and write? That's difficult to say because Although we have lots of those simple people in the texts and talking in those, those texts, there might always be the possibility that they hired a professional scribe. So many of the texts, let's say, communication between farmers probably was written by professional scribes who more or less wrote down what the farmers told them. But we have no guarantee that those texts were written by the people speaking in them. So probably there's an intermediate level, which are the professional scribes phrasing and maybe rephrasing some of the texts. So they were illiterate users of written culture. Exactly. This is what we suppose. I mean, probably those texts were dictated, written down by a professional scribe, then transported to the addressee and written aloud by someone who could read and write to the addressee if the addressee was an alphabet. <laughs> Highly interesting and important group of texts are, of course, all kind of legal contracts. We have plenty of those legal contracts because this was part of the ancient life which people would like to lay down in written form. <laughs> So we have contracts about marriage, we have contracts about divorce, we have loan contracts, lease contracts, etc., etc. On the one hand, this is evidence for 
the kind of legal life and the legal practice in antiquity. On the other hand, many of those documents just come from what papyrologists call archives, which is a group of texts. Somebody who was a businessman collected his paper, and much of the papers were legal texts, legal contracts. If we have those groups of texts, probably a dozen, probably five dozens of texts, it is, of course, a different horizon on the life of just one specific person. So through those legal contracts, we can see all kind of business transactions, or we can see all kind of, let's say, social business going on, because we have, let's say, a rich landlord and just a poor farmer renting out a plot of land and so on. All kind of social history and economic history can be found in this kind of contracts. Third group, which is important for the historians, are uh, all kind of tax receipts and tax accounts. This is something like the intertwining of, let's say, personal history and the state institution. We have lots of texts showing us the communication between the individual and state authorities. On the one hand, top-down, like kind of regulations, proclamations from the governors, even from the Roman emperor or from the Ptolemaic king to all his subjects. But we have also the other way around, let's say bottom-up petitions, all kind of complaints <laughs> addressed to the local authorities and sometimes even to the Ptolemaic king. So this is a kind of level of interaction between state and people that we hardly have in any sources beside papyri, in any sources from antiquity. This is, for the historians, the only chance probably to see how any state apparatus was functioning on the ground. Thank you. So we've learned how papyri documents are valuable sources for historians of uh, literacy, for historians of social history, economic history, for those who are interested in those lower echelons of the Egyptian society. But how do those papyri documents reflect on political events? Mm -hmm. How they can help us understand the political events that were happening in the late antiquity and early Middle Ages? Papyri then are a valuable source for historians of literacy, uh, society and economic history but are also probably important documents that can change the way we think about certain political events. One of such events that took place in the beginning of the 7th century is a dramatic rebellion of the future emperor Heraclius against his predecessor Phacus. I would like you to tell us more about this event and how studying papyri documents helps us to better understand it. Usually papyri do not speak about concrete historical events. We would like to have a private letter, let's say, talking about the Romans are coming or the Sasanian army is entering Egypt or the Arabs are coming and conquering Egypt. Usually these were not the kind of things apparently that were written down and communicated in writing. Nevertheless, occasionally we have some documents which in direct way indicate or highlight specific historical events. One extraordinary case is just a small legal contract. Again, a legal contract 
which is a deed of surety type of document that we have in dozens and dozens of examples. But in this particular document, the important point is just the dating. The dating clauses in antiquity usually contain the names of the reigning emperor, the reigning king. This was the method of, let's say, reckoning a year. And at this specific papyrus, which is housed in the papyrus collection of the Austrian National Library, we have a dating clause naming the Byzantine emperor Phocas. The extraordinary thing is that it is dated January 610 CE. Now, as we know from the historical sources and the historiographical sources, this was the period when there was a civil war going on between Phocas, the emperor, and a serpenter called Heraclius, or actually two Heracli, because they were father and son, both called Heraclius, and the son is the later Emperor Heraclius. So we know this from the historiographical sources. This was an uprising probably starting in 608 in Carthage, where Father Heraclius, Heraclius the Elder, was the governor of the African province. But the major event took place in Egypt, because Egypt was of crucial importance for the Byzantine emperor, as it had been for the Roman emperor. Egypt was a highly productive country in terms of agrarian production. We had overproduction of wheat, which was exported on an absolutely regular basis since the early Roman times. So each and every year, many, many tons of wheat were transported from Alexandria first to Rome and then to Constantinople. Rome, as well as later on Constantinople, depended to a certain degree on this import of wheat. So controlling Alexandria and Egypt was a crucial point in reigning the Eastern Roman Empire. If we follow the historiographical narratives, the whole story reads like this. So there was this uprising from the both Heracli in Carthage and the cousin of the younger Heraclius called Niketas sized Alexandria and the city, conquered all Egypt, controlled all Egypt. And a little bit later, the younger Heraclius rushed on to Constantinople. He conquered the city. The old emperor Phocas was caught and was murdered. And we have Heraclius as the new emperor. So this is a story of success, let's say. We have a different version of the story in just one Coptic chronicle, which, however, is not preserved in Coptic, but in an Ethiopic translation of the Coptic text. So this is the reason why usually the ancient historians and Byzantinologists thought that this specific chronicle from a bishop, John of Nikio, should be regarded with caution. However, this chronicle describes the events in Egypt in much more detail than any other literary source. He's talking about a long struggle of power between Niketas and, let's say, other authorities in Egypt which remained loyal to reigning emperor Phocas. So the story was not quite clear for more than one and a half year. The outcome of the big struggle was not predictable. 
The new papyrus shows us that this struggle was going on until early in 610. So more than one and a half year, the whole situation was ambiguous and it was unsure what would be, let's say, the result of all this fighting in Egypt. And it becomes clear that the whole story as the official Byzantine historiographies are trying to make us believe is just part of the story. It's not entirely clear where for one and a half year the future emperor Heraclius actually was. He was not involved in the, the fighting in Egypt. So this was done by his cousin. And suddenly just this one dating on one papyrus shifts the whole story, let's say, from a story of big success of uh, the new emperor to something like, well, this was a long struggle of power. It could have had another end. It was just good luck for Heraclius that he, in the end, won the Battle of Egypt and sized Constantinople. But his role, the role of the future emperor, during all this struggle is not at all clear and the outcome was not clear for such a long time. So in the end, this papyrus shows us that after, let's say, the victory of Heraclius and after Heraclius was enthroned as the new emperor, the events which took place before <laughs> he becoming the emperor, they were put, let's say, under the carpet and were not part of the official, let's say, narratio of the events which we find in the historiographic sources. So this is just one example where a papyrus, without talking about those events, but just by his dating, also his place of origin, in, not in Alexandria, but in Middle Egypt, shows us that things actually developed in a quite different way than historiographical sources want us to believe. That's very exciting, especially given the prospect of so many different papyri just like this still waiting to be read thoroughly. Mm -hmm. This is something probably worth mentioning. Probably one million of papyri are surviving today in the various collections in Egypt, in Europe and in North America. And after 140 years of very intense and dynamic scholarship, not even 10% of those materials have been read and published. So we have another 800 years or so in reading those texts and adding to our knowledge. There is plenty to look forward then. <laughs> Professor, thank yep. you very much for joining us. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. <laughs>